So I got into light bondage as a late teen with my partner at the time, just as a little bit of experimentation. And I guess it kind of planted the seed and it's kind of grown into a bit of a passion of mine. So my fetish actually started off as a phobia. When I was a kid, I was really scared of balloons. So I enjoy being submissive in a dynamic with my partner and in particular degradation. So you've got a kink or fetish. Maybe you've just discovered it and are slowly learning how to embrace it. Maybe you've known forever, but you're still struggling with those feelings that come up when you have something that's out of the ordinary, like shame or guilt. Look, wherever you're at with it, you might be thinking, how open should I be with my kink? Who should I tell? Should I start living a fetish lifestyle or finding like-minded people? Should I start wearing my harness onto my work shirts or going to events? And what if my kink is dangerous and morally not okay? Is there any way I can change what I'm into? Nat Tenchich here, and if you haven't already listened, I want you to head back into your podcast feed and check out the episode just before this one. We covered the basics of kink, delved deep into the psychology of it all, and how to navigate it in your intimate relationships. But in this episode, we'll get into how to find a kink community, how to deal if your fetish is kind of morally dubious, and how to make sure the play you're having is consensual and safe. When you shared your stories with us about finding your kinks and fetishes, some of you said it was such a relief when you told people about it like a weight had been lifted. But that might not be the case for everyone, especially if you are, as I said earlier, dealing with a lot of shame. So how open should you be? What should you think about before you decide to potentially shout it from the rooftop? Director and founder of SHIPS, Sexual Health and Intimacy Psychological Services, psychologist Dr. Sarah Ashton, says it really depends on what you're hoping to get out of it or why you might want to come out to other people? What will it mean for you? For some people, really being able to genuinely acknowledge and integrate this into their perception of themselves and and their their kind of broader public identity can be liberating, you know, just as it, it can be liberating to kind of reveal any other parts of our identity or our person, you know. But a lot of people choose not to do this because there is this stigma and shame attached to it. And and so I think it really comes down to you asking yourself, what is it that I'm hoping to achieve with this? And how am I expecting people to respond? You know, because sometimes if we want to accept something within ourselves, we externalise this to the world around us and we want other people to accept this. You know, we want the experience of, oh, I tell my parents, you know, that that I'm into bondage and they say, that's wonderful, darling, and, and then I feel truly whole, you know. And and so I think that <laughs> it's really important to, to, to kind of be aware of what your internal motivations are and be realistic about what you think will be the response, what you think will be the outcome, you know, because if you're going to get a negative response, it's important that you're you're prepared for that, that you're that you're being realistic about that. And and you might say, well, look, even if I do, you know, it matters to me and, and it matters that I'm being aligned with myself and I'm being genuine and that's the most important thing. And then great. But make sure that you're just carefully you know, that you're looking after your own safety and you're looking after your own emotional safety by considering all the possible responses and outcomes. Absolutely. We can't be super naive here. You have to think about what kind of impact being open about your fetish might have on the people around you. 
especially if there's some moral murkiness around your kink. That's something that listener Eliza went through with her ex. So earlier this year, I actually ended a friendship over my so-called friend defending my ex-boyfriend, saying that fat fetishes aren't bad. Now, let me uh, say I don't have anything against fetishes or kinks. I myself have some. I like BDSM, that sort of thing, with two consenting adults. That is completely okay. However, once you involve people, once you're fetishizing a person, a race, a body type, or transgender people, that's when it becomes really questionable for me morally. I've always been a proud fat girl. I wouldn't say I've always been a proud fat girl. I am, as of now, a proud fat girl. But my point is, it's not okay, I don't think, at all. It's okay to have a preference. Like, sure, you can have a preference over my body type than, you know, someone that's skinnier, but it doesn't mean that you should objectify them. Um, It makes me feel gross. Um, And yeah, thank you. Well, Sarah says the most important thing to talk about here is objectification. Essentially, this goes back to, again, back to one of our core principles, which is that another person who's involved in the kink or fetish, they have to be able to consent. And when you objectify someone, you see them as being an object, as in not a person. You're not considering their feelings. You're not considering their their preferences, their desires. And so if this is the way that you're relating to or you're interacting with another person, then you're actually not considering their consent and all the factors which are relevant to their consent. So again, this can be very uh, different if someone consents to being objectified. So they find it to be arousing. um, They're aware that this is happening and they want you to do this. Then that's an entirely different situation. But certainly we can, you know, really kind of clarify the experience of objectification as being something that disconnects us from the person that we're relating to and and kind of has the potential to really breach consent. But what if your kink or fetish is actually dangerous? That's something that James got in touch with us about. He wanted to know how to deal if the fetish you have is borderline illegal. See, when he was younger, he found out that he was into EFRO. So you're Lagnia, specifically outdoor voyeurism. So what all this means is he's into watching people pee, preferably without their knowledge. Gets him hot. He says when it comes to the porn he watches, nearly all of the content that he's been into has been recorded without the person's consent. For example, a hidden camera in a bathroom, which is, of course, not legal. He wants to know how to deal with the shame he feels about this kink and whether there's any way to unlearn it. Here's what Sarah thinks. Whenever I have people come into my practice and they're talking about a sexual behaviour that that perhaps brings up shame for them, I think the important question to ask is who do you want to be <laughs> and what, what do you want to stand for? What impact do you want to have on people in your life? And that question is not excluded to or it doesn't exclude your sexual behavior it doesn't exclude what you're into um, because it's part of you there's a danger that happens when we start separating out our sexual self from our our everyday self or the other parts of us because then it um, isn't governed by the same sort of personal or moral standards that perhaps we have in the rest of our life 
you know, this can be really difficult when perhaps you have experienced things in your past which have, you know, led to the development of a fetish um, and you feel aroused by something which perhaps doesn't connect with the, the way that you want to, to operate as a person. Um, and this can be, a, a, you know, a really, really difficult experience to to resolve and, and to live with. But this is exactly the thing that, that I help people with in my practice. So it is absolutely possible to, if it is something that you want to change, if it's something that you you don't want to experience, then there are um, therapeutic strategies for understanding and managing and changing the neurological pathways in our brain that are associated with um, arousal. Um, and, And I think another point to mention as well is that the kind of key factor perhaps in a type of kink or fetish to kind of consider is, is the other person involved or other people involved, are they consenting? And if they're not, then it's not okay, um, and that's that's when it, it becomes an offence. That's when it becomes illegal, you know. Um, and if you are aroused to something that is illegal, then it's important to think about well, what are the ramifications for me and what are the ramifications for other people? Even if you're consuming content which has been pre-recorded, you are part of and you're perpetuating the demand for that content and so you are and you're in a sense um, re-victimising the people who are part of that content. Okay, well, what if you're into pain and violence but it's just a fantasy thing? Is there anything wrong with that? That's what Mel wants to know. I enjoy and get turned on by seeing people inflicting pain when watching porn, but I have absolutely no desire at all to either give or receive pain in my own sex life. Why is this? So, Sarah, can you help? Yeah, look, this is um, this is a pretty common kink and it's a pretty common internal dilemma that comes up, you know, when people uh, perhaps potentially feel aroused to to violence or or um, inflicting violence either on themselves or other people and then they they feel perhaps well not only that they wouldn't want this to happen in real life or that they feel morally opposed to it and so I think the again the important thing to remember is that fantasy is is completely different to reality and um, that there are you know what goes on in your mind does not necessarily you know translate to what you want to do in real life um, and and really might be this um, this kink that's developed for you. So you know there's lots of different psychological functions that that violence can um, can serve, and you know um, there's lots of different ways that you know if we think about what's different in your mind, you're in control of it. You're 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 playing it out in the way that you want it to happen, and and it's paired with pleasure, and that's very different to <laughs> to any other kind of you know violence that you've been exposed to or you know watched in your life before. Sarah talks a lot about how important consent is when it comes to fetishes and the kink community, but sometimes, like any type of sex, there are risks involved, and that consent can be broken. Now, just a content warning, because we're about to talk about sexual assault, choking and physical assault. So if this is going to be heavy for you, you could speak to Lifeline, 1-800-RESPECT or QLIFE, all great resources, and you can get the contact numbers in our show notes. Now, with your kink, you might be into some heavy, physically taxing or risky stuff like pain or cutting or choking. Now, when it comes to consenting to that kind of thing, boundaries need to be very clear. For Dolly, who was assaulted by someone she met on a hookup app for kinksters, the pain play went too far. 
it crossed the line. Dolly spoke with me about her story and why she wants more clarity and education about how to negotiate consent in kink play when you're starting out. So what happened was I had arranged to meet up with someone um, through like an online dating app that's specifically for kink. And I mean, the messages that he sent were very brief and in one of them, he said, I'm going to choke you out as soon as I walk into the door, like walk into the door. And, you know, me not kind of taking that seriously, just I thought it was a bit of a hype up. And we had previously agreed that, you know, a little bit of choking was okay. So when I had opened the door and that was the first thing that happened, you know, I was a bit shocked and he choked me to the point where I became unconscious and that's the first time that had ever happened to me and he repeatedly kept doing it so I couldn't even say stop or anything like that because I just as soon as I would gain consciousness again he'd start choking me out again um never taking his hand off my throat and what happened after he had you know finished was he just sat there for about two to five minutes afterwards and had a conversation with me like everything was normal. So obviously I felt by his demeanour he didn't feel like he had done anything wrong and it almost felt like a failure on my behalf to, you know, kind of pull that up at the start. So when I went to go look for his profile afterwards, um, he had deleted it and I, you know, tried to block his account, but nothing happened, tried to report it, nothing happened because it was deleted. That would be really difficult to start seeking support for and I guess legal help as well because, you know, it sounds to me like he feels he was staying within what was negotiated. That's the impression that I get. Yeah, and I feel like because of the message that he sent me, like he did – state what he was going to do but like at no point was there any kind of like this is going to continue happening or to that extent like there there was really no consent towards that but this is the thing as well if I was to take it to the police it'd be really hard to prove my case because obviously the meat was consensual uh choking was consensual but there was just um you know this gray area of what his idea of choking was versus what mine was. I'm so sorry that happened to you. It's just a lot to hear. Tell me about encounters you've had previously and since. Um, So previously, like that was the first and thankfully like the last encounter that I had like that with a person like that. So usually, you know, people were very you know, they're happy to talk first before they jump into kink. And they're just, like, really respectful. I found the reason why I liked meeting outside of my place or at my place was because a lot of people would see that as your domain and you'd feel more in control. And even afterwards, like, I was definitely more careful with exactly what words I'd say and I'd make it very clear to them that, you know, there was to be a build-up and this was not okay and this was okay. So I think it just kind of made me a lot more aware of how I should be 
telling people what I want, but at the same time, it's you still kind of have this feeling about it that it shouldn't have to be to that point where I'm having to nitpick at every single line that I say to ensure that my wishes and my boundaries are respected. Like when you are in engaging in kink, I feel like you do have this higher amount of trust that you've just popped on the table and that does leave a larger possibility for those vulnerabilities to be exploited and your trust to be broken. Yeah, absolutely. What would you like to see change about this whole situation? Because it's it's horrible and I never want anything like that to happen to anyone else. So, like, what do you think needs to change here? What I think needs to change is especially like if it's an app dedicated to something like that is making people aware of what consent is and informed consent into activities because you know that's that's the important part consent is sexy informed consent is amazing and that's what I'd like to see change because as soon as people become more informed and educated and understand that this is the expectation of the community as a whole, then we'll start moving out those people who want to abuse that out of the circle. No one should ever have to go through what Dolly did. And if you have been through something similar, I am very, very sorry. And I want you to know it is not your fault. It's never your fault. Here's Sarah. I mean, I guess what I want to say up front before I comment on it is that I can't actually provide any advice or um, specific information that relates to a, a given individual. They'd need to be sitting in my therapy room and we need to set everything up in order for me to do that. But I'll kind of make some some general comments that um, relate to some of the themes that were brought up. So, yeah, I suppose that if we're talking about the the issue of of consent in the context of of meeting up and and practicing kink just like with any other sexual behavior there there needs to be a a shared understanding of what's okay and what's not okay um with every person that's involved um so just because uh somebody thinks that you consent to something or you've agreed to meet up with them or you've even agreed you've said verbally that you want to engage in any kind of play or any sort of act that does not necessarily mean that you will continue to consent so consent can can change over time and it can change in different contexts and it's our responsibility to check in with the people that we're um, having sex with or we're playing with um, to make sure that they're okay with what we're doing. And so in terms of, you know, just sort of the the processing and, and the reflection around something like this that happens, I think it's really important to just sort of acknowledge that, you know, we are not responsible for other people's behavior. They hold responsibility for checking in and for navigating consent. And if somebody violates our consent, if somebody does something that we're not okay with, that's not our fault. That's not something that we need to hold responsibility for. I think the other really important 
point to kind of mention around this as well is that there's a lot of conflicting advice and information about the practice of choking. So choking in itself is is really quite a dangerous um, behavior to engage in. Even if you know someone quite well and you know their body quite well, there's a lot of risk surrounding this behavior. So there's, there's some consensus even within the kink community that this is not actually a safe behavior to engage in and that an incredible amount of, of physical risk that's involved in it. So I think that, you know, when you're considering and you're setting up your play session, you're really wanting to understand the, the limits and boundaries of, of, of someone's body physically and their, their mind emotionally so that you're on the same page about what you need and what you want and what's going to keep, keep you safe physically and emotionally. Um, but there might be some acts that, that actually hold such such high risk um, in terms of the the outcome that, um, yeah, there needs to be serious consideration around how you're actually going to explore that kink, um, how you can do that safety uh, safely, and if you're actually going to be able to do that safely at all. Okay, now, with all of this being said, and who you think you could tell and who you maybe shouldn't tell, If you are feeling like there's no one to tell, it does make you feel pretty alone. Something that can really help you get through being a kinkster is connecting with other people going through the same thing. And that's why kink community is super important. It's great to connect and talk and feel like you have a place where you belong, especially when it comes to sexual play that is still pretty misunderstood by most people. Mel from Sydney and Dan from Perth shared how they found their kink communities. I was interested in kink for ages. Um, I went to Sydney Sexpo in 2013 and it was there that I came across MJ's Toy Box. Um, They had a stand and they were showing people all about bondage and they had a shibari demonstration and I was really fascinated. And um, the shibari instructor actually said to me, I'm happy to tie you up. Um, So I did a little bit of shibari at Sexpo. I thought that was really exciting and fun. And then people told me about Hellfire in Sydney, which is a kink event. Um, And so that sounded really cool. So at the start of 2014, um, in February, I went to Hellfire in Sydney. Um, And yeah, that just blew my mind. And that's where I met a ton of kinksters and they all told me about FetLife and jumped on FetLife and I found the Melbourne kink community and started going to events in 2014. And from there, it just, yeah, I completely fell down the rabbit hole. So that was my introduction to uh, my kink community. I came into my current relationship without having explored my kinks or my sexuality or anything like that. So when my partner and I started dating, she really promoted um, communicating and being really open and vulnerable. Um, so when we came to the discussion about kinks and and uh, having sex and toys and things like that, um, I was able to be really open um, about, you know, the kind of things that I wanted to try or and the kind of things that she wanted to try. Um, and it was really cool to be able to have that conversation without feeling judged um, or, or worried about what she was going to think or what I would think. Um, so, yeah, kind of through that, I discovered my community of, um, yeah, and it, it was really cool. I, um, yeah, kind of we, we bought a few toys um, and kind of discovered pegging and, and uh, like bondage and 
um, yeah, things like that, which is really cool. And, and kind of through that promotion of being vulnerable and, and open, uh, not only with my partner, but with myself, I kind of discovered um, that I was bi, which was really cool. Um, and I, although I'm still quite new to, to that sexuality um, and, and there's, you know, not... I'm not very open with that to to everybody. It's really cool to be able to talk about that with my partner and kind of really just be open to her about that. Um, And that's helping me become a lot more open to other people and accepting myself, I guess. Um, So yeah, I kind of discovered my community through having a really supportive partner um, who was really open to to not necessarily doing all this crazy sexual stuff, but just the conversation about it. Um, Yeah, so that was really cool. And Sarah says finding your community is so important, especially if you are dealing with that stigma. Surround yourself with people who are experiencing the same thing as you. You know, maybe it's not exactly the same sort of kink or fetish, but, you know, having this as part of the way that they, you know, they live sexually and the way that they perhaps, whether it's part of their relationship dynamic, to find people who are experiencing the same thing, you know. Um, So that's one of the most useful and most powerful things that you can do. Another thing you really have to engage with when you're living your kink lifestyle is your safety and privacy. Because as we've established, we're just not quite at the place where this is embraced or openly taken without judgment. And look, my dream is that we can go out there and be tied up in ropes and be our kink selves and not have it impact our work prospects or livelihoods in any particular way. But, you know, in some spaces, it is still a concern. We just got to be real about that. So if you are engaging in kink, what is the best way to stay safe and maintain your privacy? Now, Sarah says it's something that's really important to think about, considering the reality we're in. For this reason, most people who practice kink and who are members of the kink community choose to use a same name. So this is a, another name that they use while they're in the kink community and they, they don't disclose their, their legal name or their, their real identity. And so in considering your own safety, especially your own safety online, I think some important things to think about are, are to just check to see that all the things that you're posting mean that you maintain this anonymity so that you're not posting any e- images uh, or photos of yourself, which perhaps are on other websites that could be identified or linked with your name, um, that you're not including any information about where you work, any email addresses or any, any content that could be linked back to your real identity. Look, most people in, in the kink community are in the same position. So they're extremely respectful of other people's privacy um, and they understand that, that this is part of keeping everyone safe. But, yeah, it's really important that, that you just are conscious of that and, and check all the information that you're providing. So how can we all move forward and change the way we think about kinks and fetishes? I'm talking about the kinds of kinks and fetishes that don't betray anyone's consent, that don't hurt people who can't. That's kind of the line that Sarah drew a little earlier, and it's a good one to bear in mind. Because lots of kink is healthy and fun and a really good way of working out the things in your past. So how can we embrace them and turn them into a really healthy part of our sexual lives? 
this all starts with your personal exploration and um, an ability to accept this as part of yourself. And of, of course, in a world that that stigmatizes it and doesn't accept it, this can be particularly challenging. But you know, once you see this as being part of yourself, then it's much easier to to integrate this into your, into the rest of your life with a feeling of of pride and enjoyment and and acceptance. If you can free yourself from the, the, that sense of shame then that, that's just about the most powerful thing to do because, you know, we'll be waiting a while for society not to be <laughs> to be a bit different. So start with yourself and start with the way that you treat other people. You know, if you can respond to other people with acceptance and curiosity, if you can be exploring and kind toward, you know, a partner who discloses a kink or a fetish towards you, and if you maintain an open mind and, you know, remember the principles of, of, of having fun and, and, and making sure you're safe, then then, you know, there's just, there's an open world of sexual experiences that that can unfold that can, you know, make your life and your relationships and your sexual self um, just a, a really fun place to be. A huge thanks to Sarah and, of course, everyone who got in touch. Thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing your stories with us. It really does mean the world to me. If you do want to get in touch about this episode or any topic you'd like us to cover, DM us on Instagram at Triple J The Hookup or email thehookup at abc.net.au. Sending you lots of love and catch you next time.